This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello, this is Talking Flutes, and I'm Claire Southworth, chatting again today with Liz Walker about our ideas on tone and teaching tone. Well, what a huge topic, Liz. Absolutely. Where to start? I don't know, but there's one little thing I, I must tell you that I was reading reading in the in the papers yesterday about a study, I think it was in Australia, that has found that people who listen to podcasts are more open, intellectually curious, and less neurotic than those who don't. So well done, all our listeners. <laughs> yes. Congratulations <laughs> to them. Much more intellectual, curious, and less neurotic. I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> Great time to start listening to podcasts. No, I'm joking. <laughs> tone. Should should we start with um, beginners? Yes. Thoughts about tone, either teaching them or listening to them, or I've I've always thought it's maybe with beginners for me that I didn't ever think it was too clever to talk about good or bad sounds. I didn't want to differentiate between good and bad sounds because beginners don't know the difference between good and bad, and we all have a method of producing our sound just by telling a student how doesn't necessarily result in them finding a good sound. No, I mean, it might be worth um, finding out and reminding beginners why they've chosen the flute. With any luck, they've chosen to play the flute because they like the sound. And that's, I would say, the starting point for most of us. You know, what we, we want to do something that that we like the sound of. So it may well be worth introducing or, as I say, reminding your student to to spend time listening to flute players because that should be and probably is the inspiration for for why they're going to spend a lot of their hours (laughs) playing the flute. Uh, And it's because they like the sound of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then and lots of different flute players, because this this is all about oral awareness, if you like, which are, and, and perception of sound. It's important skills that we, we need to develop. So it brings me back. I, I, I told before we started, I've just been to visit my new granddaughter who's five weeks old. And I was thinking about how babies listen and absorb sounds and then yes. they imitate or copy and then communicate their own individual thoughts the building blocks of our musical learning can be exactly the same so yeah so introducing work sort of away from the music stand helps I think helps develop a more confident start in flutesing and I think you know uh, I know we've said it before uh, but it's worth repeating that actually as teachers we are also inspirers and there's no harm at all in starting right from the very beginning playing duets with your students even if they've only got one or two notes you know allowing them to be making the sound with you will be really inspiring even if they can't make the same sound by any stretch of their imagination they're going to enjoy 
performing with you or, or playing with you uh, as soon as possible so that they share in, in that enjoyment. It's like doing, starting, like you'll start off with a form of improvisation, which is just copying you, m- making sounds. Young students love funny sounds and producing funny sounds. Again, another memory of, of mine of Joe, my son Joe, when he was first starting, he'd heard Ian Clark's Great Train Race. Yeah. And he could hardly play anything on the flute, but he mimicked the train sounds. And Brilliant. he was actually playing the harmonics without knowing what they were. So he was, yeah. he was playing contemporary techniques without any thoughts that they might be difficult. And then a bit later on, he had a, came to one of these huge conventions with me in America. One of my friends, wonderful Latin American player, Nesta Torres. Joe was a great fan of Nesta's because I was always playing Nesta Torres's music. And Joe got him to play. Joe, Nesta said, oh, let's do some jamming together. And I said, oh, my God, this, I don't know what he's going to do. He can, he doesn't, he's not that good. Nesta just said, what's your easiest note? And Joe said, G. So he got him playing G and he played G with him in a rhythm. Yeah. He said, just keep doing that. And then Nesta improvised over the top. And it was so much fun. And there were loads of people listening. Everyone's thinking, this is what it's about. Playing is fun. There's so much excitement and enthusiasm for something very, very simple. Yeah, absolutely. For our young students, it's making the fun aspect uppermost in their minds that they come to lessons knowing they're going to have some fun. Yeah, I think that's... And and as soon as they're having fun, then they're going to be making that progress because then they're also going to be wanting to practice. Because one thing I would say, Claire, to get straight into the nuts and bolts of a good sound is actually, you know, it takes time and repetition. And I think we all know as players that if we're playing lots guess what? Our sound gets better. And one of the difficulties I find with beginner flute students is that they don't, they can't spend that much time playing their flutes. I mean, it physically, you know, they can't hold the flutes up that long. They haven't got the, the developed lung capacity. And so, you know, you don't expect them to be playing their flutes for very long. And therefore, of course, the sound suffers. And we can't really make good progress on tone development until we're really practicing quite a lot. And I don't, sorry, I don't even mean practicing, I mean playing. I mean actually playing, you know, getting those little tiny muscles around the, the embouchure, really, really, really working takes uh, regular practice time. And so we've got to get our students into the place where they're having such fun that they want to carry on playing their flutes and, and keep picking the flute up lots and lots because then their tone will naturally get better without us even saying anything so that is also encouraging them to experiment more and to be creative with what they do so it could be that you know you could be talking about in terms of developing this the strength of the embouchure doing things like bending notes and doing harmonics on a head joint but not telling them it's harmonics but getting them to blow more blow less blow up, blow down, all these sorts of things where they develop those muscles because the embouchure has so many little muscles all the way around it. And that all helps with this build-up of the muscle memory. And not to worry, I think for the teachers who are listening, to not worry about how quickly or not somebody develops. Because, of course, as you said, it all depends on the time that they put in and how they practice. And the thing is, just to keep being as creative as possible in your teaching 
to give them different things to do and to get them excited about it. I mean, the real ideal is that they 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 go home and they can't wait to get that flute out of its case again. And I've also noticed um, that when I was young, certainly, the piano was just sitting there. And so I quite like sitting down and doodling on the piano. And because the flute was tucked away in its box, uh, just that that action of having to take it out. So I've, I've developed with very young students that idea that, providing it's a safe environment if they haven't got sort of younger siblings, but if they can keep their flute out, because ideally what we, we're wanting is for them just to keep on picking up that flute, you know, even if it's for you know, two minutes, the fact that they're going to do it more than once is going to be really great. So I find that that tiny, tiny barrier of the flutes away in its box, it's not just there. You can't just pick it up because you've put it away. Mm. I think sometimes causes uh, a difficulty and they, 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 they're waiting for that time to practice their flute. If it's just out, they could just pick it up and play it and, and put it back down again. Perfect. So yeah, I would also encourage maybe if it's suitable, uh, just leave that flute out uh, as a beginner and just encourage them to keep picking it up and making that sound because the more they do it, the better. Yeah, as long as just a caveat to this, as long as it's in a safe place where yeah. the cat can't knock it off or the dog <laughs> knock it off or the, the young, younger or older children, siblings can't knock it. I think the worst, sorry to interrupt Claire, the worst damage I've ever seen, an innocent uh, seven up can of sticky drink knock, knocked over a student's wow. flute. That was thousands of pounds worth of damage. I mean, so yes, safe place, up on a bookshelf maybe, out of harm's way, but just somewhere visible so that they can come into a room and go, oh, my flute's there. Well, hey, I can just pick it up for two minutes. No, absolutely. absolutely. The other thing I was thinking of, I'm a great believer in trying to develop sort of self-awareness. It doesn't matter how young your student is. You can ask them, a teacher maybe could ask their students to describe how you sound. Remember, there's no right or wrong. And then how they sound. So they get almost get used to the terminology. So whether they think a sound is, is maybe clear or focused or edgy or open or closed, if it was texture, what is it? If it's an image, what is it? What color is it? If it's a food, what is it? You know, if you end up having green custard, which is fine, but say, okay, now if you wanted to change it into blue custard, what do you think you could do to get them thinking about moving something in yeah. order to develop sound rather than get into our sort of more advanced terminology? That's um, a really lovely idea. And, and it would also uh, encourage them to start, you know, really listening as well. Yes. Yeah. And, and the use of imagery for, for you know, re really trying to home in on something. I think that's lovely. And then that encourages them to play more away from the music stand. I've yeah. said before now that when I started, I was given a flute and a tuna day book one. And I was looking at the book and I wasn't thinking about what I was actually doing. You can start just with the head joint. I mean, I even like the idea of, you know, trying to put the young kids with rolled up paper into the end of the head joint and, grab, and getting them to blow and cutting off bits of paper so they understand how the flute works, so they hear the different, how the sounds change, and getting them just developing these listening skills right from the start. Being creative and not, not actually having to be sort of slave to that, 
you know, because the beginners, they find that so difficult, the reading of the notes and the, and the length of the note. You know, we don't want any of that really getting in the way from the actual nuts and bolts of playing the flute. So uh, as much as possible, I totally agree. Get away from the music and, and be much more creative in what they're doing. So it's, it's all good things. So not to worry if they don't look at a book for quite a few lessons even, as long as you've yeah. got, they've got enough to do and to, to, to practice with. Well, a combination of the two, Claire, just having, you know, um, the first, first few minutes experimenting and playing around and listening and changing colours and then putting the flute together and, and getting into the, to the music. But a combination of the two so that if they haven't got the time to get the music stand and find the music, they can actually be still playing. Absolutely, because when you encourage them to sort of experiment and explore like this, with, without a book in front of them, which could also stifle them. I mean, this is the true meaning of music making, where you yeah. pick up your instrument and you play the freedom to discover without sort of restrictions. And, you know, when going back to sort of when Joe was playing this one note rhythm with Nesta improvising over the top, you know, if you can find a riff on a loop, and then play with them and just, even if it's just on one note or just on the head joint, it's fine to think of different rhythms, to think about, to help bring in what we were talking about in our last podcast about posture and breathing. That's really good then to go into something where you're not looking at the book, that you're talking about, okay, think about your posture, think about how you breathe in, how you blow out, and now think about a rhythm and pushing the funny sounds, maybe singing and playing, or just singing. This permission to experiment all the time, don't stifle the creativity. That can continue. You know, we're talking about complete beginners here, but actually that can continue much longer than I think we we sometimes realise. So, you know, once you get into the grades and you open that grade one book and the grade two book, you know, I think we need to still have this idea that the first few minutes of their playing every single day should be out of that book and not thinking, oh, I've got to play the exam pieces and the scales, but much more explorative, much more creative, much more, much more fun, to be honest. It's interesting how that idea even is important when you get to much more advanced students. I remember, you know, when you're, auditioning for conservatoires and you hear students who've got incredible potential and creativity and then they get to the conservatoire and we also have spend the we almost spend the first two years stifling that creativity because you're having to teach them how to actually play the flute really really well I don't know whether there's a way around that but it's I always feel that you create barriers when you start to get really serious about the flute it's a great shame yes it is a great shame and, and and it's something I've noticed more and more is uh, when I was a student in London we I was always at I was always at concerts I was always at the Wigmore Hall and at the South Bank and there's a great argument isn't there to be said well students can't afford it anymore but there's always a scheme there's always a way in there's always you know all oh, my teachers in the orchestra so I can squeeze into the dress rehearsal but I don't see the students anymore and I think it's such a shame it's so important it's what we do and it's where you get that inspiration to make the better sound is from hearing music live I know it's so easy to hear podcasts it's easy to hear YouTube clips it's easy to get your inspiration from a download somewhere but actually at the end of the day I still get goosebumps from going to concerts and I want to see our youngsters out there 
at the concerts because I don't understand where their inspiration is really coming from today because well, they seem to be quite resistant to going to a live concert. They've got lazy because because of media, social media, you can hear things. And I think they think, well, if I can hear them on YouTube, why would I make have to spend the money and go to a concert? But there's nothing like live music. There's nothing like music. I went to, um, I mean, it was pre-lockdown, but I went to a wonderful recital uh, that Adam Walker was doing at the LSO St. Luke's. I'm not entirely sure how much it cost, but it really, really wasn't very much. It may well have even been one of the free concerts. And I was astonished that I couldn't see a single student there because I got excited, Claire. I ran home to go and pick up my flute and try out the sounds that he was finding and creating and, and play the music that he was playing. I still find it my inspiration. So I would definitely, if there's any youngsters listening to this podcast, please go to a concert. Do that tick. Tick that box this year. When you, when you think back to, to the auditions for conservatoires, we'd always ask questions like, who is your inspiration? In terms of flute players, who do you listen to? And then we'd say, and what concerts have you been to? And over 90% of the time, they haven't been to a concert. Just like you said, they've never been to a, a summer school and they're saying they're keen on the flute, but they haven't actually thought about what does that mean? If I want yeah. to spend a career playing flute, you've got to be very focused and you've got to work at it and you need to be open your ears to what's around you. And if you haven't got a clue what the standard is like, because you've never listened, you're not going to succeed. So right from when we talked earlier about babies absorbing sounds and learning from that, we as adults or as learners, we're all learners, still need to open our ears and listen and try and take something for whatever you hear. Even if you don't like what you hear, you can take something yeah. from it. But you know, Absolutely. if somebody, you know, if you'd go to a, a, a concert, like you went to Adam Walker and it's moved you, it's moved you because he communicated to you and he inspired you and he got you excited about wanting to play and wanting to do the, the things that he was doing. There's nothing like it. You know, I used to have it listening to, to William Bennett, James Galway, Peter Lucas Graf. You know, I'm so lucky to hear a lot of these fabulous, great gurus of the flute. And, you know, you just couldn't wait to, to go and try and improve and try and, you know, emulate what these what these people were doing. It's terribly important. And the other thing I don't think I'm wrong in saying is that nearly all the music colleges, uh, certainly down in Wales where I teach, they'll have free lunchtime concerts. They'll have free masterclass series that you, you can't go and play, but you can go and listen. And the resources of free concerts, if you're wily, are enormous, absolutely enormous. And I don't think it matters which bit of the country you're listening in. Uh, you will find that there'll be a, a local music college or institution or as something out there where you can access free concerts. If if that's what you need to do, go find them because they'll be there. And, and even if you have no serious ambition for flute as a career, it's just a wonderful hobby, then Get in touch with, if you're close to, to a big city, uh, London, Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and you've got a conservatoire, ring up or email the secretary of the Woodwind Department and ask about concerts or yeah. masterclasses and what you can go uh, what you can go to. There are, as, as you said, Liz, there are an awful lot of freebies that you can, that you can get. Yeah. 
They really are. And I think in terms of, you know, going back to our idea of, of tone particularly, it is, I'm a firm believer, it's hearing something that we like that will create in us that desire, that sort of quest, if you like, to to find our own tone. And even if we can't hear it, and this, this is very interesting, I don't know any professional singers who don't continue to have lessons all the way through their career, don't quite understand. Because when you talk to them, they say, well, because we can't really hear the sound we're making. And I go, do you know what? That's the same for me on flute. I listen, of course, now I've, I've got the luxury, there's quite a few recordings of myself, which I don't like listening to, but I can. Uh, and I'm always surprised because actually that's not what we actually hear. So I don't quite know why we don't as flute teachers and flute professionals why we don't ourselves go and get those lessons uh, that I think we we would really benefit from. There used to be a lot of sort of competitive edge where you didn't play you didn't really like playing in front of other flute players you didn't want to sort of give anything away about what you were doing and I think there's it's it's a lot better now that people play sort of work together and play to each other and chat about how how they can improve and what do I sound like and it's really healthy if you've finished training don't mean it doesn't mean you have to finish having lessons talking from sort of my position you know when I was professor at the academy I used to love teaching students who'd gone through the conservatoire training and were were professionals but they wanted to come to have maybe three or four intensive lessons on specifics whether it was specific to do with tone or specific to do with working towards something specific program. And it's it was really, I found that very exciting and very sort of inspirational. So it's good to go and have lessons, keep having yeah. lessons. I think it's it's a it's a luxury and it's a luxury that we shouldn't be frightened of doing. Yeah. Let's get back to our nitty-gritty subject of doing. So it's difficult to know where to start. I used to have, I was famous for my, a list I used to have for tone, because I used to talk about tone having so many components. Now, this doesn't matter whether someone's just starting or someone's been playing the whole life, but tone still has a lot of components. Things we were talking about before, the posture, embouchure, breathing, um, blowing, and then you can get into the flute setup, which affects your tone and the balance points. And then I used to go through things like bending notes, harmonics, whistle tones, ghost harmonics, tone colors, dynamics, pitch control. <gasps> I've got my list. Intonation, uh, tuning, yes. vibrato, all those things yeah. are components of tone. But when you say finger technique, you can just say, well, it's every finger. Yes. But for tone, it's, so should we take which which one of those should we have a look at? The, well, the one I, I'm fairly obsessed with is, so maybe we could start there, is is air, the, the, the use of air. I mean, it's, it's such a sort of uh, important concept. We've talked about in the past, Claire, about the, the speed of the violin bow and emulating that maybe as the speed of air changing. I think it is the basis of... Um, of colour and dynamics and, of course, intonation. It it all depends on our control of that speed of air. Where to begin? Now, there's a hard one. 
I have used uh, for the last few years at um, at Wales where I teach uh, Philip Bernold's book. I love it. It's called The Wind, The Sound. And he says it's a selection of exercises to develop a beautiful sound by controlling the air column. And it's quite a good it's quite a good book for not only really advanced students, but anybody I would say from about grade five. It's got progressive exercises. So it's one of those really good books if you've got maybe the summer holiday coming up and you want to give your slightly more advanced students something to work through. If you're teaching beginners, I still think it's an excellent book is if you as a teacher absorb the sort of concepts that Philippe Bernard is is going through in, in his book. And you just need to adjust uh, the exercises a little bit uh, to keep them in, in keys and using enough notes for you know early grades but the concept's exactly the same which is basically you know just looking at air and nothing else so trying to avoid too much use of the lips try to avoid anything other actually than than thinking okay I'm breathing in and I'm releasing that air and I can change the speed of the air depending on whether I'm going up or down the flute or up and down the phrase or going louder or softer so it's really being becoming super super aware of the speed of air and and I like that book a lot just because as I said sort of simplifies into this is what we're looking at. Totally agree I think that most people listening teachers listening won't have the the freedom to sort of use that for long and that maybe if they as you said if they can adapt some of the ideas in the book to introduce bits each lesson so at least you get your students thinking about the use of the air then you can't go wrong I mean it's just such an important feature of, of what we do the other wonderful book of course by Philip Berno is his technique d'embouchure which yeah. I love and that's to do with flexibility very simple sequences to develop flexibility and a consistency in the sound starting very simple and then getting a little bit more complex but it's a, a wonderful book and again you can take ideas and as a teacher I think it's wonderful to, to get as much information as possible sift through see what you like see what you don't like and then adapt it to to your to your teaching and then just go by the resulting effect if, if it helps your students fantastic if it doesn't try something else it's a bit like the um, the Moise de la Sonorite, which I was brought up using, and then for a short time, well, maybe still, I haven't I haven't bought it for so many years. It became too expensive, really, to use as a, as a you know teaching resource for um, certainly beginner students, and it just the investment was just enormous. So I just adapted it, Claire, and I think that's the way we teachers have to look at all of these things you know not our students don't necessarily need or want to to invest heavily in these large books which for us are essential but for them maybe it's it's missing the point a little bit so just take on board um, Moises de la Sonority and and teach it again from I've I've taught complete beginners and started each lesson with B going down to A and then A going down to G and using really what what is in essence de la sonorite, but I'm just adapting it for, for a beginner student and, and just making sure that those sort of principles of set up, embouchure, air are all being explored even from day one. 
Yeah, the, the cost is prohibitive. I used to say to students, well, look, go to a shop and have a look at De La Sonorite, and then you know the exercises. Then you don't actually need the book. You need to have see the, the concept behind it and see the idea and then bring that in, into your practice. I know that students think long tones are boring, but by playing some long tones, your ears open and you start, you hear properly. So you don't have to do it for long. I mean, even um, I know there are some teachers who have to teach six, six students in 30 minutes or, or, or even less than that. But you can all be playing some tone exercises together and yeah. give them the, the concept for them to take away and practice and get them to talk about what they're doing and what they're finding hard, what they're finding easier, and just to get them thinking. It's also setting up, preparing how they need to practice during the week as well when they're not with you in the lesson, because obviously the shorter the lesson, the more they need to take out of that short time and use really wisely on their own, which, you know, introducing the idea that you just, you know, put your flute together and you start by just blowing long notes. Uh, Even as you say, if it doesn't take that long in the lesson, uh, by introducing that concept right at the beginning of every single lesson, very quickly, they should go home and start by doing their long note practice, which will stand them in such good stead. And hopefully the teachers, certainly for, for younger students, will have given a clear outline of what's sort of expected for the good days and not to worry about the bad days. I hate this thing about students developing this awful feeling of guilt that they haven't practiced rather than create keep this enjoyment of the improvement that comes with practice. And so certainly with conservatory students, I used to say, look, just plan your week, but plan your week where you have time off. And you go and enjoy that rather than think I really should be practicing and feel guilty about it. Now, that same idea can be taken to younger students saying, you know, don't worry if you run out of time. Just enjoy the next next time you do and try and just be as consistent as possible. You know, even a few minutes here and there, like like you said, if the flute is out on a bookshelf, they can every time they walk past just to blow a few notes. Wonderful. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about that a difficult topic of colour or different sounds. It's interesting, right at this moment, I think I talked about this about a year ago, is that we're in spring and the most vibrant colour in spring is green. And there's so many shades of green. So green's the colour of, of life, nature, renewal, growth, freshness, hope, rest. There's so many descriptive words for for green as well. There's spring green, apple green, lime green, pea green, grass green, you know, all these things. And so many subtle changes just in one color. And in, in in our flute playing, it should be just the same. We shouldn't be just playing in a monochrome. We should be playing in as many different colors. Although color is this difficult concept, which is why earlier on I talked about maybe if it was a food, or if it was texture, that some people, some students relate better to, to that kids love food, the food idea. Yeah, I uh, think food is an excellent one for children. I, and, and I love that sort of textural um, with food, you know, like a, a gooey chocolate, you yeah, know, they can, yeah. can really, really, really picture that one. So I, I agree. I mean, I'm a great 
colors teacher. I in my <laughs> my teaching room is absolutely full of of posters of I mean particularly like David Hockney's he's got a wonderful picture with the purple road so anybody that's listening and has uh, learned with me they'll know about the purple road because I also love in pictures you know the fact that it's a two-dimensional picture it's flat on my wall it's just a piece of paper and yet in that piece of paper is not only all that color, but it's also, it goes into a three dimension. We can really feel that that moving purple road. It doesn't have a two dimension, it has a three dimension. And I think the same with, with, our, with our music making. It's a, it's a series of black and white dots on a page. But when we put it into our flutes, when we put it into our imagination, those two dimensional um, dots become something three dimensional. And it's in finding it's that quest, isn't it, to, to sort of bring out the 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 the, the colours, the shapes uh, that, that really, really bring our music to life. Absolutely. Which is what's needed. Now, we always have lots of questions about how not only how to teach colour, but also when. And I think there's it's never too early because never. when we talk, we were talking about the beginners, about trying to, to, to help them be a bit experiment, be a bit more creative. If you talk to them about the vowel sounds, so what's by that I mean the oohs, o's, r's, i's, e's. If you actually get them to sing, to, to get kids to be kids that usually don't have any inhibitions, they'll sing. So you can get them to sing something just with an with an ooh shape, and then change it to maybe an R shape, and then get them to play and think about doing ooh as they play or thinking R as they play. So you're not talking to them about this is how we play with colours. We're just saying, can you make the sound change? And yeah. say, okay, look, that was different. Did you hear the did you hear the difference? And okay, if that was then, if that was a a colour, would you say that's, you know, is that a pale colour, a strong colour? Is it fuzzy? Is it clear? Is it texture? Is it like concrete? Is it like cotton wool? Whatever you can bring in yeah. to make them link what they hear to something that's a bit more tangible and then say, okay, let's change it. And of course, as teachers, we can mimic what they do and say, okay, let's see if, which one of us can change it. Wow, what did you do? How did you change it? Could yeah. just be blowing more, blowing less, blowing up, blowing down. Could, doesn't matter how they do it, as long as they're thinking about doing something. And that paves the way as they advance to a much more complex and interesting and exciting topic. And I think it's much more relevant to them than saying, oh, you know, you need to open your mouth a little bit or you need to blow a little bit. And it, it's not... It, because rarely is it not solvable for themselves without that, you know, if they've got the inspiration to try something, then they'll they'll naturally be making those little changes. What you want a starting point, get a recording of Ian Clark's Great Train Race, because yeah. he starts off with the, with the sort of no sound, you know, the sort of the train noise. And that's, it's just brilliant to get kids excited about sounding like something they might recognise. 
blessed, aren't we, really? with I mean, we often uh, criticise, uh, I think, our, our sort of lack of, of repertoire on, on the flute. But we have so many good gems, and, and I, totally, I totally agree with you. If you can get them excited about a piece, and you can get them having a go at that, they don't need to know that that's a post-grade 8 piece. Not a problem. Just have a, have a little starting point. And, and that would also bring me to, to the idea of, you know, trying to tapping as quickly as you can to to something that they love a song that they love or a piece of music that they've heard that they love and again it's a sort of summer holiday project that I tend to do with my students is make sure that you know they've got a list of some of the pieces that they've heard during the holiday number one to make sure that they are out there listening to music it's so important it's what we're doing it's what we're, we're talking about um but also you know it's it's really interesting for me then because then if i can make some sort of link even if it's just you know inspir improvisation around just coming into whatever it is and it doesn't need to even be some music that they've listened to it could be a play that they've been to or a film that they've seen something that can link then into into putting into practice a, a piece or something or a concept that they really love so that they can explore that and that can tie in exactly into that whole sort of sound world uh, creating um either either a, a, a little section of music I mean because that's the other thing I would say that we need to get away from reading the music when we're working on tone so if they've got a piece of music that they're loving playing even you know take away the dots as quickly as you can for tone practice and just say well you know what what little bit of this piece are you loving uh, and if they can you know, play that little corner. It, it doesn't need to be more than a bar, to be honest. You can then work on the sound without the music there so they can be really, really listening. So taking away one of the senses, if you like, uh, opens up um, more possibilities. Now, if you've got students that find that they just struggle and that whatever happens, it's sort of just the same noise that they get out of their flute, yeah. it's great then to introduce harmonics so with harmonics you can just say okay for, so for kids you know just finger any note and see if you can make the note change by just blowing a little bit more bit higher bit harder doesn't matter what happens just to see if they can make something change so they can actually do something that changes as opposed to yeah. just blowing a normal note and thinking I don't know what I'm doing and then the whistle tones so for those of you who don't know what whistle tones are it's when you just almost just so lightly blowing, just above where the note sounds, you get little sort of, I don't know whether you can hear it on, little, little tiny, little tiny whistle sounds. And you can, when you get really good at it, you can actually stop on one of those whistles and keep it consistent. But again, I found, I found that whilst teaching younger students, they love this. They love trying to get whistles. And it would be terribly frustrating for some of them. They couldn't get them. And then suddenly, they there they are. Yeah. yeah. And on all notes, it doesn't matter what note you play, there's a whistle to be had on every note. Do you, do you do that as well? I do whistle tones and harmonics are fantastic. Again, if you play along with them, uh, that you can nearly always get one or two higher than they can go and they get really cross because they want to go the same height as them. <laughs> So you can, you know, 
bring in that little element of 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 desire i want to get all the way up to those and 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 really 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 helpful for the advanced students i mean it really controls that what i think is probably our hardest technique which is is to taper off those top notes with with control um they get so much better and so much better control with regular use of harmonics yeah really really helpful the other thing that we haven't talked about is vibrato though and that's obviously quite a a, a big subject for me as a, a as a baroque and traverso player yeah. um i tend to forget to teach vibrato because i'm so used to hearing notes without uh, but controlling vibrato and and then using vibrato as a color um to color uh, certain notes um i know there are certain teachers who are very very nervous about teaching vibrato and i do get that because i have had students with the most natural vibrato that makes me do a little sort of inward dance because it's added so beautifully uh without any consciousness at all and so i i totally understand why teachers uh are nervous about then you know tackling something that is very natural uh, but i've equally had students with such a heavy which is natural uh, but such a heavy vibrato on every single note uh, that their music play making has become incredibly um heavy and and they've been criticized so you know you do have to tackle it sometimes uh, not always but it is such a beautiful tool that we have for for tone so i think it is worth considering teaching uh, vibrato i don't think there's any problem in teaching vibrato to to youngsters or you know uh, beginners whatever the age you don't necessarily have to call it vibrato because really vibrato really is exercises in breathing and um you can just link it link it to that the only Proviso would say that, you know, okay, when we have students who arrive with a beautiful natural vibrato, like you were saying, it's such a joy. And then you get those who have a, a fast nanny goat throat vibrato. And that's that is the only time where it's a bit of a problem that we need to try and eliminate that. Because as long as you've got a tight throat vibrato and more natural vibrato is very difficult to emerge, it's difficult for that to emerge. So breathing exercises blowing exercises the air exercises you were talking about earlier on to try and get a a consistent straight sound without movement from there you can introduce exercises to encourage a more natural vibrato it's a, yeah. it's a huge topic but uh vibrato of course a key component to tone and i I have no problem about introducing any of the areas I talked about my, my, of my list. I don't see why you can't introduce anything from that list at an early stage. You, wow. you don't have to be complicated about it and you don't have to name it. Because remember, there's, it, it really doesn't matter. You're just introducing things. And kids are so keen to learn and absorb that sometimes they might have heard somebody say, oh, but I've heard someone and they, they make the, the sound shake. So there you go, vibrato. You, but then you talk about it and then you try and give them, so let's see if we can do it too. So it's, yeah. you make it exciting and interesting. Because I've had so many students arrive and they say, oh, no, I can't do vibrato. And I think, mm, 
that's interesting. Somebody must have told them that because <laughs> that's not a natural thing to, to feel, is it, that, that you yeah. cannot do vibrato. That's yeah. uh, it's like people that come along to me as adults and say somebody told them that they couldn't sing. Absolutely <laughs> heartbreaking. Everybody sings. Yeah. yeah. Well, the only thing I could say is that if you're, if you're listening and you've got students who can't play with vibrato, you think, or has a, a vibrato that doesn't work, is to go into singing, get them to sing what they're trying to play, but also really look at how they're breathing in and blowing, because it's really that that yeah. dictates how the vibrato arrives. So if the breathing isn't good, then the vibrato won't be good. No doubt about that, Claire. I mean, it, as a as a boat flute player, the first thing you learn to do is to play without vibrato, because vibrato on a basically because the Baroque flute has a very narrow bore and it's conical, so it ends up being really, really small at the end. If you try to play a, a, a wooden conical flute with vibrato, it makes the most awful noise. I mean, it really doesn't work. You have to approach these these early wooden flutes. And actually, the, the conical bohm flute that I play, my, my original Louis Lot, is exactly the same. doesn't respond well to vibrato at all. So you have to be able to play with, with no vibrato. And if you have to be able to play with no vibrato, you very quickly learn how to play with vibrato because if you take it all away, uh, you then are supporting the sound in a completely different way. And when I teach uh, Baroque flute, I, I tend to talk about, you know, trying to send the air down this narrow bore without it hitting the sides of the wooden flute. And in order to do that arrow straight air, you are going to support the airstream so well. <laughs> for it not to hit the you know ricochet off the sides of of your traverso flute and and then when you add it you know as i say you've you've then you've then found where vibrato comes from so i would say to anybody who is wanting to look at how to play with vibrato analyze how you play without yeah very good advice i think we've given quite a lot of food for thought again absolutely um, also only just touch the sides as always probably need to come back and talk about dynamics and pitch control and other things like that so all I can say is many many thanks again for your for your time giving up your time and if any of our listeners have any questions do send them either to our Talking Flutes Facebook page messages there or at flutepodcasts at gmail.com and we will answer any questions that come in so for now many thanks Liz and we'll talk again soon Bye for now. Bye-bye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.